Welcome to the FaithBridge Sermon Podcast. Be sure to keep watching immediately after the sermon for Postscript, a weekly podcast with in-depth content and answers to your questions submitted during the sermon. You can also find it on iTunes or at faithbridge.org slash postscript. My name is Megan Gallishaw. I've been attending FaithBridge for three years. I think I jumped in at FaithBridge pretty slow, pretty hesitant. Um, I think I did it all backwards. I joined a serve team because my mom was on a serve team and she kind of just brought me along. And then a year later I took FaithBridge 101. I think I was hesitant about joining a grow group just because I had been in Bible studies before and I never really found that I fit in. But I was just at that point in my life where I'm just gonna do everything new, God, because I wanna see your power. And so I even remember driving to our grow group and praying and saying, Lord, this is so out of my comfort zone and everything in me just doesn't wanna show up and doesn't wanna walk through that door. But there was something about our grow group and I would like to believe that all grow groups are like this at Faith Bridge where I walked in the door and people greeted me and carried on conversations and asked me about my life and it felt comfortable and it wasn't scary despite all the fears and ideas that I had about a grow group and it just felt like I belonged and I had up until that point given here and there as the offering basket came by and given to other ministries but not a full 10% that seemed very scary and overwhelming to me but I think that if it didn't make me uncomfortable to do it that would mean it's easy and it wouldn't require faith. And I started looking at things differently. I thought, I only have a job because the Lord has given me a job and um, I'm able to work because the Lord's blessed me with health. It changed my whole mindset of how could I not give back a portion of what the Lord has given me. I gave the first time in November, but not a full 10%. I kind of, I jumped in hesitantly and then December rolled around and I thought, God's got me, I can give a full 10%. And it, it made me nervous and it, it felt out of my comfort zone. And I had little fears here and there pop into my head that maybe go and question and check my bank account, but the Lord was faithful. And, and December was a tough month for me as I tithed Christmas and moving out expenses. Then New Year's Eve, my car was vandalized. Pretty bad, the whole back window was blown out and I just remember one morning before work in January on my knees praying and telling God the feeling that I felt, that I felt worried and that I felt anxious and I felt where am I going to have money to pay for the damaged car and how am I going to make it living on my own and very just a very honest conversation with God about my fears and at the end I just remember saying, but I trust you. And I went to school that morning and we had a staff meeting at work and they said, um, our district started a new program where if you missed less than two days in this fall semester that your name is in a hat and we're gonna draw a name for a winner to receive um, you know, a $1,600 bonus. And there were 24 people at our campus that met that requirement. And um, they called my name and I remember um, shaking. Other teachers jumped up and were screaming for me, but I couldn't, I couldn't move. And I started shaking because I knew right there that the Lord 
was saying, you're gonna be okay and I'm taking care of you. And although you give and you feel that money is tight, that I'll provide for you in ways that you would never expect, but just be faithful. I've learned through this that God not only is powerful, but that he cares for me individually. When I get in the car and go to work, there's a feeling of joy that I feel that wasn't there before. Tithing is still new and my grow group is still new. And sometimes I do feel like I'm on a ledge, but when I go back to truth, I know that where the Lord has me and where he leads me is the safest place to be. Wasn't that great? I love that story. They told me I was going to be so touched by it, and it is. That's an inspiring story. Welcome. So glad that you are here <clears throat> today. If you're uh, on the Klein campus, if you're the Woodlands, if you're online, however it is that you're here, we're really glad that you're here. And regardless of where you are in your spiritual journey, some of you have walked with God for many years, and welcome, and some of you are, you are just starting, and many of us somewhere in between. So really glad that you're here. So um, you remember last month I stood up here and talked with you about money and personal finance and this sort of stewardship. And I, I had the three jars out there and a bucket full of M&Ms. And, <clears throat> and remember, I talked to you several times, mentioned several times. I'm talking to you about this, not because I want something from you, but because I want something for you. Something like that to happen inside your soul, where your soul is pulsating with life and energy and zest and vibrancy. And that's really what this whole series has been about that we're wrapping up today, Resolve for More, in this series where we've been talking primarily about three things, daily Bible reading and regular prayer time and systematic uh, generosity. And so it's sort of like a maintenance plan that we've been installing into our souls. And I've just been so heartened by the feedback that you've um, been given. I want, to, uh, uh, I want to go back and I want to talk about stewardship uh, once more today because I think it's safe to say there is nothing that drains the soul like money matters. I just see it happen time and time again. People who say, I've got to make a little bit more money because if I make a little bit more money, then I'll buy a little bit more stuff and I can buy a little bit more stuff then I'll be a little bit more happy. But it never turns out that way. It always turns out that they're more heavy burdened and they're more stressed out and they feel more incomplete uh, the more into the stuff of this world that they get. And there might be a buzz for a day or two when we get the new thing, but then it kind of wears off and it's like, but something's not right inside my soul. You know why that is? I'll tell you why that is. It's because rich is a moving target. Um, Gallup did an interesting poll where they pulled people, surveyed, asked them, are you rich and, and how would you define rich? And the standard average was that nobody defined themselves as rich, but always doubled, roughly doubled their amount of money and assessed that would be rich. So if you make $30,000, oh, I'd be rich if I had 60. If you made $50,000, wow, I'd be rich if I had 100, and on and on. 
which goes to show that rich is a moving target and it never leaves an accurate forwarding address, which is why the author of Ecclesiastes said, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. And so that's why we're gonna take a, a second swipe at this subject. And this time, not standing up here and doing the jars and the M&Ms, that was the how. If you haven't figured out, I'll just sort of connect the dots for you. The first run through Bible reading and prayer and generosity, we talked about the how. And I did a little rocking chair thing and just showed you, here's how I do it in the m and And then Pastor Dan led us into the second sweep through, second pass through, it's really on the why. Why would I want to read the Bible? Which if you didn't hear that last week, you really need to hear that one, that was so good. And why uh, pray? What's going on at a deeper level? And today I wanna to talk about why is it important for us to prioritize developing our stewardship? In a nutshell, Jesus talked a lot about it. So he clearly was on to this reality that the temptations, the trappings uh, of this world are always going to be enticing our souls and wrapping their fingers around our throats to draw us in. I think this is why Jesus must have talked about money more, would you believe, than the subject of sex, he talked about money more than the subject of heaven, he talked about money more than the subject of hell. He talked a lot about it. It's because he understood our souls. So today, I want to uh, take a look at a parable I've never preached about. And uh, so turn in your Bibles, it's Luke chapter 19. I've had a really great time studying this uh, passage. And I think it has a great uh, lesson or two or three for us. Take a Bible. If you need a Bible, just raise your hands. The ushers are bringing them uh, down the aisles in all our rooms, and you can uh, borrow one, or you can keep it. If you need a Bible, it's our gift to you. So we'll go to Matt, uh, rather Luke chapter 19, and we're going to start in verse 11. While they were listening to this, he, that's Jesus, went on to tell them a parable. Because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. And he said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants and he gave them each one mina, 10 people, 10 minas total. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. Parenthetically, that's not these 10 men. That's the people, that's the other people. But he was made king, verse 15, and he returned home. And then he sent for the 10 servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came in and said, sir, your mina has earned 10 more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied, because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter. Now take charge of 10 cities. The second came in and said, Sir, your, your mina, mina, whichever way, has earned five more. His master answered, Great, you take charge of five cities. And then another servant came in and said, Sir, here's your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. You take out what you didn't put in and you reap what you didn't sow. It's 
Master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I didn't put in and reaping what I did not sow? Well, then why didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? And then he said to those standing by, take his mina away and give it to the one who has 10. Sir, they said, he already has 10. He replied, I tell you that to who everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who didn't want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Now, interesting parable. And it's unique in that it is the one parable that Jesus told, which was in part based on true history that had happened 30 years prior. I don't have the time to give you that backstory. If you're interested in it, though, I'll explain it on the postscript. So in the interest of time, what we've got to do is just move right into the story. It starts with this nobleman who's going away for a while, and then someday he's going to come back and he's going to turn as king. And in the meantime... He's entrusted each of these 10 servants with Amina. And in today's dollars, you do a little conversion and say, well, what's Amina, Amina, what's that worth in today's dollars? Well, scholars say that'd be worth several thousand dollars. It's not enough to live off of, not for a year, certainly not the rest of your life, but it's something, several thousand dollars. Okay, and what does he say? In verse 13, he says, now, while I'm gone, I want you to put this money to work. I want you to multiply it. Don't play with it. I want you to steward it. Don't squander it. And so that when I return someday, I can reward you for how you've stewarded the mina that I entrusted to your care while I was gone. So two of the 10 servants, they did really awesome. First one comes in, says, hey, I got you tenfold return on the mina that you left me. And he's like, that is awesome. Since you could take such good care of that, I'm going to entrust now stewarding 10 cities in my kingdom. You're now in charge of them. And he goes out. The next one comes in. He says, I got your five-fold return. He said, that's awesome. I'm going to give you charge of five cities in my kingdom. Incidentally, you needn't compare the five with the 10 as if, well, he did you know, so much better than him, and he didn't really, you know, do his best. No, no, no. I think what he's saying clearly here is they were both achieving according to the capacity that God had given them. He gives us all different capacity, right? Don't focus on that. It's the third servant that you have to move your focus to. The third servant steps in, and he reaches into his pocket, and you just picture him pulling out this old sweaty handkerchief, and he unfolds the handkerchief, and he pulls out the mana that the man had left in his charge. And he says, here's, here's your mina back. I, I didn't do anything significant with it. The king is quizzical. He's like, what? I gave you the same blessing as all the others, and you just shoved it in your pocket, and you didn't care to do anything significant with it while I had left you in charge of it? What, would you think I was never coming back? Did you not take me seriously? You don't think this really mattered? 
To which the, the, the servant, he's like, oh, no, 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 oh, 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 he protests. That's not it. I, 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 I knew, I knew that you're a harsh man, that you're a mean man. You reap where you've never sown before. And so out of deep respect, that's it, out of deep respect for you, I didn't do anything with your mina. And the king clearly sees through this. You didn't have any interest in me whatsoever. I can look right through to your heart despite your words. He says, what do you mean I mean and harsh in the first place? Haven't you ever thought about the fact I gave you that mina? I, I gave it to you. It was my gift of grace. You didn't earn it. I entrusted it to you because I am gracious. And oh, yeah, by the way, did it never dawn on you while I was gone all those months that you had shelter that you slept under and warmth at nighttime and you ate three squares while I was gone here? Did it never occur to you I was providing all of that for you? What do you mean I'm mean and harsh? At the very least, you could have just gone down to the lender's table. That'd be like our bank today. You could have gone down to the lender's table and at least turned it into a CD and got a paltry 1% or 1.5% or maybe 2% for it. But you didn't even bother to do that much. You just shoved it in your pocket despite all of this. And so he leans over and he takes the mina away from that servant and he gives it to the one with 10. And he exacts justice on this servant and on everybody else who refused to yield to his lordship. So it is not really a happy ending for some of the people, but it's a really happy ending for a couple of them. Now, what I want to do is I want to draw out three principles that we have to make sure we've captured uh, to understand uh, this parable. Before we pull out the three, let's make sure we understand what symbolizes what, okay? Because in Jesus' parable, you always have to figure out, okay, so who is Jesus and who is me and, 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 and all this, okay? Let's make sure we understand. The nobleman who goes away for a while and comes back, that represents Jesus, who knew when he was telling the story, I'm going to go away to heaven, but then someday I'm going to come back. I'm the king of kings. And so I'm not going away forever. I will be back. He's the nobleman. The servants, though, that's those of us who have professed our faith in Jesus, who've said, I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus. I belong to him. His enemies, those represent the people who just crossed their arm to him in the first place, who said, I don't have, want to have a doggone thing to do with God, and the, the king, rather, and I, I, I don't have anything to do with, I, I'm a self-made, I'm doing it on my own, and just rejected his kingship. And then the mina represents our stuff, the stuff that he's given to us. Sure, our money, sure, our stuff. I don't think it's doing an injustice to the text if you say, well, wouldn't that also include our, ta our talents? Sure, I think that's fair to say. And our time, sure. But certainly, our finances. Now, with those uh, terms defined, let's look at three things. Three things, if you're a note taker, here's number one. What he's telling us in this parable is, 
you and I have been entrusted as his stewards, whether or not you ever wanted to be. He's trusting you and me to be his stewards. See, but here's the problem. <clears throat> when we get our hands all over his stuff, what do we do? We start shoving it down into our pockets. And pretty quickly, if we're not careful, we can start calling his stuff my stuff. This is mine, right? But what does 1 Corinthians 4 say? What do you have that you didn't receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you didn't? And deep down, you know this is true. All of us deep down, we, even if you're the quintessential self-made man or the self-made woman, you know, if you're honest, really honest, you know if everything was removed from you that had been taught to you by other people, if God removed from you all the natural abilities and talents and the sharpness of your mind that you enjoy, if all that was removed, you'd be a zero. Um, but we fight this, don't we? Because we like to think, I did it, and it's therefore mine. C.S. Lewis wrote about this in his classic called The, the Screwtape Letters. Great book in which... Uh, he characterized, fiction of course, he, he, he's characterizing how it might be for this senior demon whose name is Screwtape. And he's advising or he's coaching this junior demon who is his nephew called Wormwood. And it kind of lets you in the mind, uh, so to speak, of, of the enemy. And so Uncle Screwtape is telling Wormwood, here's how you mess up the lives of these humans who we don't want to let get close to God, who we don't want their soul to be vibrant. Look what he writes. In, in, uh, he, he writes saying, the humans are always putting up claims to ownership, which sounds equally funny in heaven and in hell, because the moment the humans die, they then discover how much of their stuff was really ever theirs. John D. Rockefeller was one of the wealthiest men who ever lived, and when he died, somebody asked his accountant, so how much did John D. leave? And the accountant said, all of it. <laughs> he left all of it. So the minas that we have during this in-between time, you see, they're not ours. Everything we have ultimately comes from above and belongs to the king. Why do we emphasize this? Because unless we can really start to get this embedded in the frontal lobe of our brains and we're thinking about it regularly, we'll never approach the subject of stewardship rightly. Left to our own devices, the structures of our self-esteem will always default over to rising and falling on how much stuff we're accumulating, how much stuff we're getting, how much stuff we're amassing, or <clears throat> they'll fall conversely on how much we've lost, how much we don't have right now compared to the other person. And I'm telling you, when you're down, it'll grip you by the throat 
and it'll strangle you and hold you hostage and deprive you of all sense of joy and peace and love. John Wesley, he lived in the 1700s, and he, re- he understood this. He really understood this stewardship well, and it really was borne out clearly the day that he got some bad news. Somebody came galloping up to, to, to him on the horse and, and said, Mr. Wesley, Mr. Wesley, I've got terrible news for you. Your house is burned to the ground. And they say that Wesley pondered it for a moment, collected his thoughts, and then replied, no. My house hasn't burned to the ground. The Lord's house has burned to the ground. One less thing for me to have to worry about in this life. He really understood that whole thing. We're merely stewards. And when we start thinking as our, as, of ourselves as owners, that, has, that must become a red flag for us friends, right? Because we're his stewards. And the interesting thing is, as his stewards, um, we have unrestricted access to his stuff. As his money managers, he actually trusts us to set our own salaries, to decide how much shall I keep, how much shall I draw for my living expenses and so. But ultimately, only the portion of his stuff that we choose to invest back into his kingdom through generosity, giving it away, putting it into the lives of other people who needed the gospel or who needed clothing or who needed food or or who needed uh, something else along the way until we're, we're, we're investing back into his kingdom. Nothing counts eternally, only that part counts and is multiplied in eternal sort of dividends. So we as investment, investment managers, we need to regularly be looking for the best ways that we can to funnel his money back into kingdom expanding ministries. For at the end of the term of our lives, we'll all stand before him and we'll give an account for the type of money managers that we were with the stuff that he entrusted to us. So why does stewardship matter? Number one, because he's trusted us to be his stewards. Whether or not you signed up for it, you are one. Second reason, because he's testing us. He's testing the loyalty of our hearts. All this life, really when you think about it, is a testing season. Sort of like it is when you first get a job, not every job, but many jobs, you have sort of a 90-day probationary period or something like that, where the, the, the general understanding is you'll get started on this job, and if you can shoulder the responsibilities that we start you with, you'll get more, and you'll get more, and you'll get more from there, and if at the end of 90 days this airplane's off the ground, we'll, we'll keep going with it. If, on the other hand, you can't shoulder even this much and you start breaking down as it will at the end of 90 days, we'll know this wasn't a fit and that way you can be freed up for your future and you can move on, right? Well, similarly, in this parable, what he's telling us is um, we are sort of in a probationary period. He's testing the loyalty of our hearts um, in this lifetime. And so he entrusts to us 
some of his stuff. Now, in this parable, notice, he didn't entrust to them large amounts. He didn't give them tens or hundreds of thousands of, or millions of, no, no, he just gave them several thousand dollars, right? Enough to serve as a test. It was enough to put those servants on their honor. And if they were really attached to the master, the king, they would live up to the honor to which he was calling them. And those who were faithful with this little could later be entrusted with a lot. While those who squandered their opportunity and trust, living only for their own selfish purposes or comforts, would in so doing have self-identified as not having really any concern for the king's priorities or interests. So here's the question. Did the king give these servants one mina because he needed the interest that they might make? Think about that. No, he didn't need their interest. If they could turn one mina into five or ten, he's the king. All the minas in the world were his anyhow. And so really when you break it down, you realize the mina, it's the interest, that's not what he, he wasn't evaluating that. That was just the test. That he just, I'm giving you enough to just watch. How will you steward this that I've given to you? Was it the money that mattered? No. It was their hearts that mattered. That's what he was trying to observe. His priority was he was testing their character while he was away, testing their loyalty, testing to see, are they really committed to my lordship? And that's what the Lord is doing with all of us in this in-between time that we call our life here on earth. He's given to each of us some stuff. And he says, now, look, I've given you a lot of freedom here. You can take out what you need to live comfortably and to be responsible with, and, but surely you don't need to take out all of it, do you? You don't need to use it all. I want to see how much you really trust me and how much of my stuff, therefore, you would actually let go of and funnel back into my kingdom currency, into the causes that you know will matter eternally. Now, at this point, you should be feeling some sense of conviction, a little sense of, because I certainly have, as I've been preparing this message. Every day as I was studying it, I was thinking, oh my gosh, I haven't, I haven't done so well on some of the tests. If you know me, you know I'm, I'm, I've always been a sucker for sort of impulse buying and not planning and infomercials. And the thing about infomercials is they're all geared towards high-functioning hypochondriacs like me, you know? And you, you start to realize how much healthier and better you're like, you know? And, and so you, you and <clears throat> so I began to look and, and say, oh my gosh, how much frivolous spending 
I've done in my own life and, and overbuying and, and thinking. I, this is a, an important parable for the preacher to look at and say, okay, how am I doing at this thing? So as a matter of fact, I faced a test this past week. Just this past week, a man came to our door one evening and um, he was working, he works with uh, water, water filtration systems. And so he came in to our kitchen and he set up all these little beakers and he poured some water from his little pure water and then some of our tap water in it and he puts these little droplets in it and he shook it all up and, and we're, it's like a science thing. All four of us are sitting there and we're watching the whole thing. It's really kind of interesting what's going on. And as he shakes it up, all of a sudden, the water that came from his funnel, it, it, it was it's just, it's like it just comes from the clear driven pure driven snow it, it was so clear and, and ours looked like it had been, been trucked in from the ganges you know and and so my stomach's starting to hurt and and <clears throat> and the more and more he talked the more i marveled that i've made it this long in life and and the contrast i'm telling you they were really stark you know and and then i started inventorying all the poor people i'd served water to and thinking i ought to drop them each a note of apology that i've served them you know this terrible stuff and well, after about an hour of it, Suzanne and the boys, she excused herself and, and they went upstairs to do some homework, but I was riveted and I sat there and we sat for a whole nother hour and I'm, I'm absolutely captured. And he says, uh, you want to walk around and see where we'd install it? I said, absolutely. We walked outside and said, so it might go right here. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, if we got back inside and I said, well, I guess we got to get down to how much is it going to cost? He said, it's about 7,500. I said, 7,500? Oh, my heavens, we could have started there. 75. <laughs> That's half a used car. Yeah, I, 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 really, but the darndest thing then happened. I started thinking, well, if we did it out monthly, and, and, that's an, and he said, if you'll do it tonight, we're going to throw in all this soap and this shampoo, and it'll probably grow your hair back. And, and <laughs> you know, all this stuff that's going to make you, it just blends with the water. And, and you have this all the life supply of all this product. And, and I'm sitting there thinking, okay, if we did this, you know, it'd be about 150 of, you know, for this month and this month. And you know what happens then? Where is it so natural to start cutting in the budget? You go to your giving. You know, well, you know, December was a pretty good month around church after all. You know, I think I could take off a month or two and that would be, you know. And you start doing this, and you kind of think of it, that kid that we support with compassion, he never sends us letters like the other one sends us letters. You know, it's, you know, and, and, and so I'm actually, you know, it's, it's so tempting, isn't it? You're laughing because you can relate, I think, or else you're just laughing at me. But anyhow, I hope you're laughing with me. And so... You know, I'm going through this whole process, and, and then in a moment of crystal clarity, I heard the voice of the Lord. And a voice of the Lord said, what are you preaching on this Sunday? I was like, I'm preaching about stewardship. What a silly thing that I'm sitting here actually thinking about this. Because how will I want to stand up before the Lord someday when he comes back and say, I took my water that had served me well enough and I made it even better. And meanwhile, I skimped out on the things that you were doing 
and you know, a lot of the offerings that come through the ministries of Faith Bridge go to such ministries that do water wells for people. And we even send out teams. And how are you going to stand before the Lord, I'm thinking, and tell him, you know, I know that there's people over there and they don't have any water at all. They got to walk for hours and sometimes a day with big pots on their head to get fresh water. And, you know, but it's about my world. It's about my water. I need that water. You know, and how am I going to explain that to the king someday? And as clarity finally dawned on me, I said to the guy, I said, I'm sorry, I can't do it. I feel badly if you you did this for two hours and I really, this was fascinating, but I I can't do it. And I walked him to the door and I felt sad for him because I thought that was a bad night for him. (laughs) He wasted two hours on me. But as I closed the door, I felt heaven smile because I felt like I I got that test right. Sat down with the family and we talked about it together. Um, So how are you doing on your own test? Incidentally, I hope that you don't go out of here saying, okay, so the point of the story is we don't have a water filtration system, okay? Because I know any number of you do. And if you do, you ought to bring me a thermos of your fresh water from time to time. But here's, here's, here's the point of that story. The point of that story is this. The, the question I want you to ask is the question I've been asking myself. Do you ever wrestle before you just spend? Do you ever run it through any filter? Do you ever think about a parable like this and say, okay, well, how, is this how the Lord would want me to spend his money? And is this something I'll be able to stand tall before him someday and say, and this is what I did with your money. So for you, it might not be a water filtration, but for you, some of you, it might be, you know, a second home or a third car or a 15th pair of shoes or a new iPhone or a new iPhone case. Or for some of you who are just hoarders, you're like, well, I'm not interested in any of those things. I just stuff it all in. Well, maybe the challenge for you is are you freeing up enough, not going without enough, but just freeing up enough of what you've stockpiled into his currency? So the point of the story, the point of Jesus' story, is this has everything to do with the test that every single day is providing for us to be good stewards of his stuff. All right, so that's the second thing. He's trusting us and he's testing us. Last thing, our effective stewardship in this life is going to be revealed eternally. It's going to have something to do with eternal rewards. Remember what Jesus said? Go back to Matthew 6. You know, I'm turning there, but I'll just read it to you. Do not store up for yourselves treasures here on earth. Why? Because you have moths and rust and thieves. They'll break in. They'll steal. They'll corrupt your stuff. So you, why in the world would you stockpile more stuff here on earth? Instead, he said, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Why? No moths, no rust, no thieves. Can't go wrong if you invest it, if you funnel it, if you channel it into kingdom economy, kingdom currency, pushing back the darkness, feeding poor people, digging water, all the stuff that he calls to be generous. 
You cannot go wrong if you're putting it there. He's saying, Randy Alcorn illustrates this really well in one of his books. He said, suppose that you were living in the days of the Civil War, uh, particularly in the last days of the Civil War. So that'd be 1865. And suppose you're in the South and you have tons of, of Southern currents, Confederate currency. And, but you can see the writings on the wall. You see where this is going to end. The South is not going to win. The Union is going to be preserved. The states are going to be reunited. My currency is going to be worthless the day that happens, this Confederate currency. Randy Alcorn writes, what would you do if you were that person and you had tons of Confederate currency? You would quickly start to convert it then, right? You would start to convert it into Union, U.S. currency. Why? Because when it's over, it's worthless. In fact, he says, you just keep enough of the Confederate currency to get you through a few days or a few weeks or a month until, until it's useless anymore. And in a real way, that's what he's saying. The test of this life is for us. It's the opportunity for us to be converting into heaven's currency the stuff that he has given to us. And there will be reward. And we don't understand exactly how does that happen, but somehow we see from the parable, he can take one and 10, and then 10 cities. You're, so there's clearly reward that will come. And besides the reward, there's joy that will come. Imagine if you were to give to a ministry like Love 146. That's another ministry that we funnel money through here at Faith Bridge. That's a ministry that uh, tries to intercept and help and free victims of, of, slave, of, of trafficking, right? Boys and girls who've been trafficked and sold as slaves. And just imagine if some of that money that you channeled into kingdom currency um, resulted in the freedom of some boys and girls not just freedom in this life, in this world, but eternally they were liberated. They met Jesus and they came to know and trust in Jesus. Imagine that you'll be in heaven, they'll be in heaven, you'll be, we'll all get to be reunited and they'll be able to say it was your gift that did for me what I so needed without which I would have not been free on earth and I certainly wouldn't have come to know Jesus eternally. Thank you for your generosity. And so you see, it really matters, the Lord is saying. And so that's why, friends, we regularly around here do emphasize responsible stewardship, not sporadic, uh, spontaneous giving, but systematic, um, uh, calculated, prioritized percentage giving. One of the best ways I've found to do it is just to do it automatically so that every week, every Monday morning, I look at my account and my offering went out that week. Then I'm not even tempted, right? There's just a systemization to it that happens. So, why does stewardship matter? Jesus tells us in this story three reasons. Why stewardship? Because he's trusting you and me. Whether or not you asked to be trusted, he is trusting you. He's testing you and me. And in the end, 
apparently it really is going to matter when our king someday returns for us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the, the words that you give to us. They give us guidance in our lives. Forgive us, Lord, for how often we flounder about just like a balloon getting blown here and there in the wind and not being tethered to anything. But then we come back to a story like this, a passage like this where Jesus talked about this so clearly. And it's like the, 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 the ringing in our soul. It just, it's, it's like that tuning fork. It just resonates and everything within us says, Yep, that makes sense. I don't know how I couldn't have seen that day in and day out. But we get distracted, Lord, and we take our eyes off and forgive us for the many times we've fallen short. But, Lord, my prayer today is not that any of us would leave feeling like failures or defeats, but that we would leave feeling inspired, called and realizing we're called to a higher level and looking forward in light of this, to the day when we will stand before you, where we can celebrate how we stewarded the stuff that you put in our charge until you came back someday. Won't you help us, Lord, to respond faithfully? And for any who are here today who've never even in the first place opened up their hearts to you, Jesus, to be their Lord, to be their King, even in this quiet moment, I pray that they, just right now, you just tell him right now in your own heart and in your own mind, I want you, Jesus, to come into my life. I want you to be the king, the Lord of my life, and I want to learn how to build my life around you and what matters to you. We pray all these things in your strong name. Amen. Welcome to Postscript. Here we hope to answer your questions and help you dig deeper into the messages and sermons at FaithBridge by talking with the teacher of the day. Hi, and welcome to Postscript. I'm Luann Riley, Grow Group and Discipleship Director, and I'm here with Pastor Ken, who just brought our final part of Resolve for More, Transforming Stewardship. Welcome, Pastor Ken. Thanks. This has been such a great series, and I love how we've moved from how we read the Bible yeah. and how we uh, steward, pray, pray steward. and give and our money, and now we've really moved into the why. Right. Um, and so this week we talked about the why being that we are all stewards of God's money. Yeah. Um, everything that he is, we have, it's yeah. because he gave it to us. Yeah. Um, and so you talked about a parable mm -hmm. um, and you mentioned that you were going to kind of give us a little bit more history and yeah, some more of the parable. It's really interesting. So scholars point out in the commentaries that arguably more than any other parable that Jesus told where you you're sure that he was preaching relevant stories that people could relate to, but you know they could relate to this one. Because 30 years prior to his telling this story, mm -hmm. um, you had a situation where Herod the Great, you remember Herod the Great's the one who had the baby boys killed who are mm -hmm. age two and under, when right when Jesus born. is born. So he dies and he leaves the kingdom 
to his three sons. So you've got Herod Antipas, uh, Herod Philip, and Archelaus. And Archelaus is the one to whom he bequeathed the region of Judea. That's where Jesus is gonna do his ministry. And, <clears throat> but the interesting thing about um, the succession of leaders in those days in the Roman world was that just because Herod left his region to those three sons didn't mean it was ratified yet. So they would take over at his death, but then sometime in the next, in the first year, each of them would have to take a trip to Rome to meet with Caesar Augustus, who would ratify and officialize that leader's kingship. Okay. The interesting thing about Archelaus is that they didn't, the people did not like him. And so they sent a, a group of 50 emissaries who, who go and they're trying to get to Caesar Augustus and say, do not make this guy our king. Do not make this guy our king. And um, so Caesar Augustus kind of has a compromise and he says, well, okay, you're not the most popular guy, so I'm not gonna make you the king, but you will be the ruler, but I'm not gonna call you king. And we'll just stay in touch and we'll just kind of see how this goes. Well, he came back and what do you think he did to the people who didn't like him? Oh. Yeah, exactly. And um, so it's interesting that Jesus, right there in that region, knows instantly when he, t a, a, a nobleman went off to become a king, mm -hmm. they're instantly going, I know this story. Mm -hmm. But of course, he's going to give it new meaning mm -hmm. because this time um, he is the nobleman. He's going to go off. He's going to go to heaven. He's going to come back. He's going to be the king. Um, and on the one hand, he's going to be so gracious. Mm -hmm. He's going to entrust the people. So this is where the, the story pulls away from uh, the history. He's gonna show a lot of grace and um, favor to everybody and leave the Minas in their charge and, and this sort of thing, take care of them and feed them and everything while they're gone. But we also know from plenty of other places, there's gonna be a day, in, a day of accounting. Mm -hmm. And for those who always said, I don't care one whit about Jesus. I don't wanna have a Lord. I don't need a savior. I'm my own person we know that person's headed into a Christless eternity. And so in that regard, the parable is, is very literal. It's like, okay. Okay, it's interesting that you say that because we did have a question that comes in that says, if the king is Jesus, mm -hmm. then how do we reconcile the harshness mm -hmm. that we see? Yeah, well, so uh, I think the reality that we have to look at throughout the gospels is that all of us deserve harshness. Mm. All of us deserve consequence and, and uh, judgment and damnation and all because why? All of us have sinned and all of us have fallen short of God's glory and everything. But for those of us uh, who would, he's offered a way that we might mm. receive grace mm. and that we might be saved so that we don't have to be judged for our sins and uh, our uh, consequences and all. So um, in that regard, the, the coin has two sides. Mm -hmm. Sure, he'll be, he's going to be harsh to the person who never chose him as Lord, who never chose him as king, who never took him as savior. 
but is incredibly gracious, graceful to those who say, no, I'm with you and I'm going to follow you. Good. Okay, so whenever we talk about stewardship, we talk about uh, generosity, there's always a question that comes in that I think is a common struggle for people. Um, when your spouse is not on the same page yeah. with you, it says uh, we are married on earth, but when we get to heaven, we're not. Yeah, right. And so how do we reconcile when maybe we're not on the same page sure. as our spouse as to how much to give or what to give? Sure. Well, I think uh, the, the scripture that you referenced is absolutely relevant, but, but not so much relevant here and now, because that's going to be relevant when we get there. Mm -hmm. We won't take uh, or be taken in marriage on that side um, of heaven. But on this side, we are. Mm -hmm. And... So I always, with this type of question, think back to uh, the letter that Peter wrote to the Christians, to the early church. Remember, they're being persecuted, they're suffering. Some of them were becoming followers of Jesus, and so they're sending questions back to Peter. Mm -hmm. And some of the women, in particular, were becoming Christians, and they're saying, hey, now I'm a believer, and I trust the Lord, and He's my Savior. And so it is well with my soul, but it ain't well with this dude I'm married to because he's not in, interested at all. Could we, uh, could I drop him and go check out the Christian youth group, I mean, singles group and try to <laughs> meet a nice new Christian guy. Who already loves Jesus. <laughs> That's right. And try it again. And Peter's going to write back in 1 Peter 3, 1. No, wives, in the same way, I want you to submit yourselves to your own husbands. Why? So that they might be won over without words by your behavior. In other words, he's, he's saying, okay, I know that would be easier and I know that would make sense, but that's not what I want. You are already married and that's a big commitment and you have your husband's ear, uh, maybe not on the tithing thing, but before anybody's going to ever be a tither, they're going to have to be a believer um, because we won't ever want to do anything that we didn't even have a reason in the first place. So I don't, you know, I'm not going to give somebody something who I, if I don't love that person. Um, so he says, so let's back up and let's see if you can help them come to saving faith. Okay, let's just put the whole tithing thing on the side for a little while. Um, and let's see if you could be a winsome witness in such a way that they would say, I want to come with you. Even this past week, I was talking to a woman who, who told that very kind of story, who said her husband just wasn't wanting to join with her. I'm not talking about the tithing here. I'm just talking about the, just the Jesus, the church thing. And he was sporadic and he, you know, hit or miss, mostly miss. And, and, but she finally just said, she sat down with him and she said, okay, I can tell you're not really into this. You don't really care. It's not your thing. And I respect that. But I'm going to ask you to respect that I do love the Lord and I'm going to go to church. That's just going to be something I'm going to do. You don't have to go with me anymore. I'm not going to make you feel guilty or anything. But I want to go. So I'm going to get up and I'm going to go. And I'm going to have my own relationship with the Lord. And 
I said, so what happened? She said, the strangest thing happened. He, after a little while that day, he said, I think I'll go with you. And I said, well, so now what? She said, now good things are happening in his soul. So I was like, well, look at that. So you got to back up. Let's set the money thing aside and let's work on the person's soul. Once a person's soul has come alive and they love the Lord and then they'll start to love the things that the Lord loves, then the generosity um, will follow. That said, I do have a, a, a sort of a parenthetical caveat. I think of um, several people that I've had meaningful conversations with, some in this church, some not, um, who have explained to me, here's how we do it in our marriage. Okay, how do you do it, they tell, I ask. Well, I've said to my husband, or occasionally, not as much, but occasionally, it's the husband and the wife going the opposite direction. Um, I've said to my spouse, um, the way that we do our budgeting, I'm entrusted with this percentage or this allowance um, to do the food or to do the bills or you know whatever it is. And so with that percentage of our income, or for some people it's their own personal check, I, we both work and so with my portion of my check, you know, it can be either which way, that person says, I'm, I'm going to be faithful in generosity. I'm gonna tithe, not on your money, but on, on my portion. And you're still gonna have food on the table and I'm gonna trust God to, to multiply it and to make it all work out. And I'll have kids, shoes for the kids and this sort of thing. And, and if it's a two income family, it, uh, the same applies, but I'm gonna do this on, on the portion of the money that I'm in charge of. How does that go? Well, generally it goes very well. Uh, again, I think it has a lot to do with the winsome spouse mm -hmm. who's not clobbering with guilt their spouse over it but just doing it quietly and winsomely. And then the, the non-believing spouse sees that and says, well, I could argue, argue, make a much of a fuss about that. Good. Okay, so turning from our spouses to our kids, we had a question that came in um, about, is, does stewardship apply to your family? So for kids' activities or sports or education, um, are we paying for those or using money out of stewardship or selfishness? How yeah. does... Yeah, I don't know. And you hesitate to... I mean, I guess we'll find out when we stand before the Lord uh, what counted as, <laughs> as generous stewardship um, and what was multiplied in the minas uh, and what didn't. Um, I think there's two ways to look at it. On the one hand, I think of 1 Timothy 5.8 that says anybody who does not provide for their relatives and especially for their own household has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Well, now that's a pretty strong word. So that tells me, okay, you, we must be stewarding our money in such a way as to be providing for our families. And um, certainly in the context of Timothy, perhaps it, had to do with taking care of the older parents. and But I don't think it it doesn't mean take care of the younger children as well. You gotta be providing for them. They can't provide for themselves either with the shoes and the clothes and, and you know some of the things. I think this is where we just have to have an honest conversation with the Lord. Like I tried to illustrate in a somewhat silly way, the whole conversation I found myself in just this past week with the water thing 
and just where, you know, every week we're saying, okay, Lord, is this a need that my child has? I want to provide for their needs. Or is this a superfluous want that the child doesn't really need? I don't really need to, to provide for them. And in fact, too much of that makes the child spoiled and it gets us all out of whack. And I don't want to do that. So Lord, what is the right thing? And this is where community can help mm -hmm. us, where when you have a brother or a sister or two or three that you trust and that you're honest with, where you can just say, hey, you know, I'm trying to navigate. Is this the right thing to do with God's money? Or am I just buying into the system of the world and going above and beyond and overboard? Speak truth to me. What do, what do you think in your, in your own soul? And I think that's where community can help us, where the Lord will sometimes just kind of strike the tuning fork and oh my gosh, am I seriously, was I seriously thinking about doing that? Um, and we'll say, nope, kiddo doesn't need this, family doesn't need this. On the other hand, I think it is possible to ratchet that thing up so tightly uh, and legalistically that we're not applying what 1 Timothy 5, 8 mm -hmm. is saying. We're not providing what they do need. And uh, so the challenging thing whenever we talk about money is everybody wants the bottom line. Mm -hmm. Just give it to me, Pastor. What's the bottom line? How much can I have? How much can I not have? Well, see, I can't tell you that. Mm -hmm. Because if I could tell you that, then there would be no faith required in your own walk with the Lord. There would be no relationship between you and Him where you're communicating and you're, you're learning to trust Him more, like that very touching video that Megan did. Um, and that's what he wants for us to be in relationship with him. So, it, so nobody, I can't tell you, here's your line in the same way that another person can tell me, well, here's, mm -hmm. you know, here's a line for you because each of us are going to be held accountable for our own Mina when we stand before him. Well, I, um, really enjoy the message. And I feel like when we begin to change our perception of who we are and how we're entrusted with our time and our resources, our gifts and our money, all of it from the Lord, mm -hmm. it begins to change our, really our hearts and our yeah. perspective and that overflows in all areas of our lives. So yeah. thanks for the message today. Sure. And thank you for joining us here for Postscript. We'll see you back here next week. Thanks for joining us for Postscript. Help us keep the podcast interactive by submitting your questions during the morning services. Learn more at faithbridge.org postscript.